our history is not about the past because you can't change the past. You can't change what has happened. Not one inch of it you can. But the past has consequences. And that's what I was taught. When you did anything, it has a consequence. And therefore, either you've got to deal with it or somebody else has to deal with it. And when the consequences of our past is racism, it's the way women are treated, it's the way we treat animals, it's the way we treat the old. All those are of past misjudgment, past prejudices, past wrongs. And we now, I think, should deal with that. The fact is, if I've got to do something, I've got to be extremely ill not to do it. Wow. Um, and I don't make excuses. If I, if I can do it, I will. Because my aunts gave me that discipline that once you're committed and something has to be done, it has to be done. My aunts, those women who I would say fathered me, that, and this is not uncommon, it's a part of our history in Jamaica, that you take somebody like Bob Marley, his father was there and his father left. There are other people in Jamaica exactly the same as myself, but the women were given this responsibility and they looked after the children. And therefore, you know, we owe a lot in our history and in our culture to the women. Mm. And the, the phrase, the woman who fathered me is not uncommon in, in, in our culture. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stories That Shape Us. This week, we have some exciting, exciting news. We had the privilege of recording Sajef Palmer's story. Sajef Palmer is Scotland's first black professor and chancellor of Herosbach University. He is a scientist and a human rights activist who has been named as one of the 100 great black Britons. Sajef's portrait was recently unveiled in Buckingham Palace as part of celebrating the Windrush generation, and it was commissioned by King Charles III to celebrate the positive contributions pioneering men and women have made to Britain. Without further ado, here is Sajef Palmer's story. Sajef, thank you very much for having us in Pennycook. Um, it took quite a while for us to figure out how to get here, but it's been an amazing day. How are you doing today, sir? I'm, I'm doing very well. I'm just delighted to see young people in the house, always am. Um, and, um, you know, you're doing something which I think is, 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 is sort of very important mm. because we're a very important part in, in our history and therefore your interest is my interest. So I'll do anything I can to, to help. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll start with rapid fire questions. No problem. And I'd ask you about five or seven questions. And you have five seconds after Done. each question the to drugs. answer. Okay. <laughs> so, That's right. so um, question one, what is your favorite book? Favorite book? Ah. Yeah. Now, my favorite book, what is it? Well, this is it. You see, I read so many. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I think in terms of importance, 
I think my favorite book is what would that be? Do you know it's a very difficult question to answer? <laughs> and what I would say might shock a lot of people because I was brought up in Jamaica, uh-huh. and the only book that I can remember which was constantly about the house was the Bible. And this was a, a book which um, um, was always on the table or whatever. And I had to, school was important, you know, going to what I was called a church school. And however, Sundays was the most important day because we people like myself, there weren't many young people in the house. There was only myself and my cousins. And then my brother came along. Um, and we had, I had to go to church three times every Sunday. Three times? Three times. Morning service, Sunday school, and night <laughs> service. And in Jamaica, that wasn't unusual. Right. And, and therefore, it is part of colonial culture. It is part of one of the consequences of colonial culture that this aspect of um, the Bible played a very important part. And so I knew the stories in the Bible. I didn't know stories from a reading book at school. (laughs) So I would say that is probably my my favourite. But there are other books which are involved in history, which I could quote them, but then I'd be advertising. Okay. (laughs) Okay. When it comes to leaders and leaders that have inspired you, who would you say your top three leaders are of all time? Um, again, um, I would say political people who I've known the names of. Mm. Um, and I'm one of these people who um, I'm not that emotional. And I, um, I know people, it was one of my criticisms, you know, people criticize me. I said, well, the thing about emotion, while you're being emotional, you're not being practical. Mm. And I feel I was brought up in the context of actions rather than words. And therefore, the people I know as leaders, one would be um, Marcus Garvey, which is a, a Jamaican who was involved in the early aspects of slavery and also a, a, an important man in terms of he is in, he has influenced um young africans so like stephen Biko, right in terms of what you call black consciousness mm. and that came from that source so i heard about him and thus he's one person who i think would be an important leader for me and the other one would be um nelson mandela mm. which is more recent um, in in terms of what I call is is political principles, and by that I me- I mean that when he achieved a position of power, he didn't um, even contemplate anything like getting even, and that to me is a a wonderful principle which I think the world should recognize which i don't think they a lot of people have really seen that Mm. that he could have really been extremely difficult to the people who gave him a bad time and therefore i uh, i really admire him and then the third 
would be um, leader. I would um, I would go for Nkrumah. Um, you know, Kwame Nkrumah. Oh, right. Yeah, in, in Ghana. Because, again, he was an early leader. I think he was prime minister or, um, of um, Ghana. Yeah. And he was actually influenced in some way by a, a Caribbean a person called Padmore. And he was from Trinidad. And he went to Ghana. And I think he was, he had an influence on um, uh, Nkrumah's thinking in terms of political thinking. But I think what Nkrumah was, he may not be very popular with certain people, <laughs> but um, I think he was very, um, he was one of the original um, thinkers who was talking about a, a united Africa in terms of working together in order to manage um, um, the resources of Africa or the potentials of Africa. And I think that people are now thinking about that today, but it's going to be difficult to achieve. But just thinking of that um, is very important because we've got a continent who people think of it as, you know, when they talk of Europe, they talk of different countries, but when they talk of Africa, they just say Africans. <laughs> and they don't realize that Ghana is very difficult from, different from Nigeria. Yeah. It's as different as uh, Britain is from France. Mm. So therefore, um, I think those views he had of Africa at different nations, but could work together to make it um, uh, a, a, a very powerful entity in the world, which a lot of people didn't like. Hmm. Okay, third question. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite food? Favorite food? Food, yes. Favorite food would be rice <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and, um, and chicken. <laughs> okay. That's very Jamaican. <laughs> um, in Jamaica, we have a dish called rice and peas and chicken. And of course, um, I just leave out the peas <laughs> because you you can buy the peas here. It's it's a red bean. We call it peas. Oh right. So it's rice and peas and chicken. It's very Jamaican. Um, and there is another dish called ackee and saltfish, sure. but that's difficult to produce in Scotland <laughs> because you can't get the ackee. Um, but rice and peas and chicken is a um, a standard dish, and we cook. Rice and rice and chicken quite a lot in okay. this house. Interesting. What is your favorite holiday destination? My favorite holiday destination. Now I've got to admit that um, my family goes. Or they, you know, they, they they go on holiday. The thing is that I don't. <laughs> Why not? I um, it's one of these things. You know, I just can't imagine. You can go away for somewhere for two weeks and sit on a beach. <laughs> After one day, I'd be bored <laughs> to death. I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> so I just don't. 
I can't remember when last I've been on a holiday. My 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 family goes. My wife goes. She goes on her own. <laughs> she goes. To, she tells me. I don't even know. I think she just leaves and say I'm going to Italy. <laughs> um, but what I did enjoy was when I was working at the you know at the university. I um, um, you know I used to travel a lot, and this was to do with my work. So I, when I was going to, whether it's Nigeria or Kenya or Zimbabwe or South Africa or China or India or to J Jamaica or to Brazil or to United States, then to me that was like a holiday. But it was work. I was going to give lectures. And to me that was a holiday. I just, um, and that because I was occupied all day. Right. With something, because they were keeping me <laughs> occupied. It wasn't me doing a thing. <laughs> I just sat there and they came and picked me up. <laughs> and, um, but holidays, um, going on holidays, I because I was born in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And like the, you know, you don't go for a holiday in Jamaica. Really? <laughs> no, I, I probably it's because of my my class position in Jamaica, as I should put it. <laughs> You know, the sea was down there and I could walk down to the sea. And I could sit, you know, walking about for a bit and I walked back home. And the whole idea that you spent a week in a hotel by the sea, I just think, that's really, how do you put up with that? <laughs> I just die of boredom. <laughs> so holidays are not a thing that I'm, uh, I'm familiar with. Okay. But but I agree. Other people can go on holiday. Don't okay. think I'm really, um, you know, knocking it or denigrating it yeah. for any good reason. No, I just think it's. I've got too much to do. I think. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh -huh. uh, just now one of our team members, Henry, yeah. is a bit like that. I could see uh that. <laughs> <laughs> I could see he was using me to justify. <laughs> You're like Sajab does it. I'm I'm on track. That's, That's right. fine. He's okay now. <laughs> I'm okay now. So Henry, you're fine. Well, I thank Henry. Thanks for the support. <laughs> <laughs> um, two more questions on this round. Um, how are you finding this, this so far? Fine. Okay, great. I think it's great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. It's um, uh, it's very interesting because they're very similar in many ways. When people are asking me about my my work, and also, um, you know, Scotch whiskey is important. And because people know that I'm linked with Scotland and and also to my students, uh, our well-known brewers, yeah, they always ask me what's my favourite beer okay. or my favourite whiskey. <laughs> and of course, I can't really say because then as soon as I say one, my phone will be ringing the next morning <laughs> saying, you know, did you say that product... <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've learned to say the one I get free. Right, okay. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> okay, so um, the next question. Mm -hmm. If you could have three apps on your phone, mm -hmm. like if you were stuck with choosing just three apps on your phone, what apps would those be? Well, I do a lot of work on Twitter. Right. Um, and I find it very useful in that it it is a very brief and very quick way of communicating with the public. 
And um, a lot of people say, well, you know, you can't carry out a, a complex discussion on Twitter. You can, if in fact you're dealing with facts and the truth. And I find it has been a very useful, um, um, you know, um, medium to communicate um, in. And therefore, that would be my number one in terms of, because it has been very useful to me in terms of getting information across and getting response from the public. So that would be one. And the the next one in line would be probably Facebook in a, in a sense that I, I, I do look at that, but not in the same frequency as I do with Twitter. And the third, I really haven't got a third. I just <laughs> do those two. I, I'm one of these people, I only do what is necessary for me. Right. I don't do what I just do it because it's fashionable. Right. So those are the two I use. I okay. don't have a third. Okay, that's fine. And um, one more question mm -hmm. in, in this round, if, if that's fine. Um, who are some people, maybe again, top two or top three, if that works for you, um, that have made the biggest impression on your life story? Two people right. who've made a, a big impression on my life story. Um, in terms of my... Hmm, um, I arrived in this country in 1955, and I came because my mother was here. Um, and she came in 1951. And she's a, a member of the Windrush generation um, because of that. I think the Windrush generation covers 1948 to 1971. So she's a member of that. And I am as well, because I came in 1955. And I traveled here on my own in 1955. And I had to go back to school because it came as a great surprise to my mother that she brought me here to work in 1955. And of course, when I arrived in March 1955, she took me home to London, in London where she lived. And of course, the next day, I just traveled 5,000 miles and a lady who had not seen from 51 to 55, who I didn't recognize at Paddington when I arrived, um, decided I, had, I was going to work. And of course, she was stopped by the uh, a man at the door who was checking on children then when they arrived. And he told her I wasn't 15. I had to go back to school for one month <laughs> because I was 14 years and 11 months. And my mother went quite... You know, she she was not happy that she said she spent £86, she told him, to bring me here. And she needed my money <laughs> to help pay the rent. <laughs> and um, he just said he's got to go to school. He's not 15. Now, the two people, there are lots of people who have involved in my life to, for me to be here today talking to you. But I will just pick out two um, because one was... If if I do it in a in in order, it was the the headmaster who took me, because one rejected me, and said I was educationally subnormal. That means I was ineducable, in 1955. 
um, and rejected me from that school. And the the other school, Shelburne, it was called Shelburne Road Secondary Modern in the middle of London, in, in um, uh, Highbury. It was in North London. He took me. And uh, and he said, you know, um, I will not take you for a month. I'm going to take you for a term. Yeah. And had he not said a term, because the term was the summer term, because March was Easter, right. and it was one month, thus the summer term would then be summer, and I played cricket. And it's because I played cricket why I'm talking to you today because that got me transferred to the grammar school because I was very good at cricket. And that got me transferred to a grammar school and then furthered my education. So Mr. Bullen, I think his name was, who took me into that school but did not take me for one month. He took me for a term. Had he not taken me for the term, I wouldn't be speaking to you today. And the other person, and I'll bring Scotland in here, because that ha this happened in London, um, um, was Professor Anna McLeod, who worked at the Heriot Watt University. And when I got a degree at Leicester University in 1964, so 55 to 64, um, I couldn't get a job in London. Um, even though I had an honest degree in botany from Leicester University. And I got a job, the only job I got was peeling potatoes in a restaurant. In, in, in fact, not far from my school, the old school which I went to, Shelburne Road. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to that school, got to university, came back, and I was working next door to the school in a restaurant peeling potatoes, which wow. I could have done <laughs> without yeah. a degree. Yeah. But nevertheless... I had a degree, I was peeling potatoes, and those two jobs were advertised. I saw them in the newspaper, and I applied for one, and that was the famous interview I, I had with a, probably the second most powerful politician in the country. And there is a recording of the, this um, incident. I think the BBC has a programme called Life Scientific, and it's recorded in there. I think it was about 2015. I'm not sure of the date, where I refer to what I'm going to say now. And this politician interviewed me, and he told me I should go back to where I come from and grow bananas. Whoa! <laughs> and I, again, because I say I'm not emotional, so it didn't really bother me much. I responded, and I said to him that it's difficult to grow bananas in Harringay. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was pointing out was my sense of belonging. Hmm. And this is the history of black people, that I was telling him that when I was in Jamaica, I, this country was called the mother country. And to me, this is the mother country of my slavery hmm. and therefore, and my colonialism. And now that I'm here, nobody can tell me to leave. And therefore telling him that about growing bananas, what I was really saying, I'm going nowhere to grow bananas. Mm -hmm. And if they don't grow here, it's too bad. And of course, I didn't get the position, <laughs> but I felt better. <laughs>
Um, so the other interview was again now why I'm here, because I was interviewed by Professor Sir Anna McLeod, Professor Anna McLeod at the Harriet Watt, and it was called a college then. It was Harriet Watt College, and um, it, the interview was at Chamber Street in the middle of Edinburgh because Harriet Watt has a now big campus, mm -hmm. has a big campus at Rickerton. And uh, the campus wasn't there then, so I had to go to Chamber Street for this interview, and she interviewed me. And, you know, she, it was really interesting because the interview was one of where she said, why, you, why do you want to do a PhD on barley? And I said, I had no idea. <laughs> but there were no other jobs. <laughs> And I don't want to peel potatoes mm. for the rest of my life. This is how I put it. And um, because I'd done no research other than the research I did for my honest degree. And we didn't do barley. So, or cereals as such, because they weren't regarded as scientifically important. They were man-made, you know, because they were agricultural products mm. as such. So anyway, I, I said I didn't know anything about barley. And she said, do you know anything about brewing and distilling? I said, no. And she then said, I'm going to take you anyway. And I said, why? And she said, when I was telling you about that, that you were looking out the window. <laughs> and she said, I don't like keen people. <laughs> and you don't show that keenness. <laughs> um, which she said, I like, because... You're somebody who will not say something that is not true. Mm -hmm. And she said, I like that. And I said, fine. And that's how I was selected to do the PhD. But what I, I checked afterwards, we got to know each other very well from 1964 December until she passed away. You know, probably 2000, 2000s. Um, she actually said what she had done was to check my background. And she said the degree I got from Leicester University plus my background made me more than qualified for the position. So she was adding the degrees of difficulties hmm. that she could she detected, which other people did not have. And therefore... What we then discussed was wider access. How can we get people from different communities, not just people from the colonies, but British people, people living here, born here, who are of different, what we used to call classes, mm. from different communities, different ethnicities. How can we get a decent representation? in our institution and therefore she took me as part of that concept of wider access so Professor Anna McLeod there's a hall of residence named after her not there it what wow um, and also Mr Bullen who it's interesting because I've spoken about him before in the media and somebody contacted me and said they were a relative of Mr. Bullen, and they were so moved by the fact that they didn't know he'd done that mm. 
to me because he, he he probably wasn't a big thing for him at the time in 1955. But they were so pleased that I am thanking a relative which for something which they didn't know he did. So those two people, without them, I would not be speaking to you today. Wow, that is very profound. <laughs> um, it's a, a very deep way of, to start this episode. You've gone on from those um, you know, experiences and moments, become a professor emeritus, um, won awards, um, spoken at various you know, places all over the world. Mm -hmm. When you look back on your journey, particularly your upbringing and childhood, what sort of values were like, imbibed in you from that age and what was what are those experiences like for you? Well, um, if my background is, you know, I will use my background to, to answer the question. Sorry. That I was born in Jamaica mm -hmm. in 1940. Um, and um, it, 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 my father was um, what was called a shoemaker. And I'm told he was a very good one. Um, and my mom came from nearby. So they came from parishes. One was St. Elizabeth and one was Manchester. Believe it or not, Manchester. <laughs> and Manchester is named after a governor of Jamaica. Wow. Manchester, yes. Lord Manchester. And the, the capital of Manchester is Mandeville. And that's named after his son, Lord Mandeville. So within Jamaica, we can pick up names. And in Manchester, there is a Balcarras, and there's a Balcarras Street in Morningside. So where I come from in Jamaica, we have links with Scotland and the UK, even through names. You know, there is um, a Glasgow in Manchester. Wow. In Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> and there is, there is a Glasgow in Manchester. In fact, one of my relatives lives in Glasgow, <laughs> in Manchester. <laughs> and when she writes to me, it sounds very much like the weather in Glasgow. <laughs> so somebody from Glasgow must have gone to Manchester and thought, this looks like Glasgow. <laughs> Called it Glasgow. So that's where I come from. My mom come, came from Man uh, Manchester. My dad came from St. Elizabeth, which is next door. Mm. And I was born in a place called... Monroe College District. And of course, the Scottish Monroes, the hills. Mm. So again, that's where I was born. So we, 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 I had that link, but didn't know the history. Um, so my mom and my dad took me to, to Kingston. That's the capital. And my, you know, everything went okay until a lot of Jamaica men, and this is a product of our, of our, our history, that men who were not doing very well um, because of the work they were doing because um, it was very um, it, it it was very periodic in terms of it was going well and then it's not going well mm. and a lot of the Caribbean men and especially Jamaica took off and went to America to work in what they call farm working and um, and I never saw him again until 1975 from 47 to 75. And I, I saw him when I went to give a lecture, a scientific lecture, an international conference. I was speaking and I looked at the back door and the door opened 
and there were three big black guys standing at the door and everybody in the hall was white except me. That's in New York in 1975. And the three guys walked up to the front, sat down. And to cut a long story short, it, when I finished lecturing, I went outside. The three of them came out and I spoke to them. And the one in the middle said, do you know who I am? And I said, of course I do. And he said, who am I? And I said, you're my father. Wow. And that was my first meeting with my father between 1947 and 1975. And he turned up because I think my mother, my mother knew I was going mm. to lecture in New York and she told somebody who told him. Wow. <laughs> so that reestablished that kind of link. And that is a link which probably was not unique to me in terms of men leaving the Caribbean to go to better themselves, so to speak. And the family breaks up in that regard. So that was my early life and when my mom left Jamaica in 1951 because that's 47 to 51 mm -hmm. um, she um, uh, left and I saw her leaving in 51 on the docks but some people say didn't that upset you your mom was going to England I said no because she was going to work to get money to, mm. to feed me and she left me with her sisters which was quite common that you find that mothers with their sisters were very close mm. because the sisters sometimes looked after their children. Right. So that link, with family link in the Caribbean was very important because mothers and their sisters were, were very close in terms of interdependence, in mm. terms of the help, uh, one helping the other. So my mom left me with her sisters. Um, and by then I had a small brother. Um, so she left me and my brother with to look, be looked after by her sisters. And there were like seven or eight of them. I can't remember. There were so many of them <laughs> that they, they were disciplinarians. You know, when there was one word, I was saying it last night to the lady who was launching her book in Edinburgh. And she was saying things. I said, what you're saying is that in Jamaica, the one word or two words, behave yourself hmm. <laughs> when you're leaving the house that's the last thing my aunts would say to me behave yourself <laughs> and if they heard you did not behave yourself you're in trouble <laughs> whether it's going to church or school <laughs> and therefore the great influence on me hmm. my aunts those women who I would say fathered me hmm that and this is not uncommon it's a part of our history in jamaica that you take somebody like bob marley his father was there and his father left there are other people in jamaica exactly the same as myself but the women were given this responsibility and they looked after the children and therefore you know we owe a lot in our history and in our culture to the women. Hmm. And the, the phrase, the woman who fathered me is not uncommon in, in, in our culture. And thus these aunts, you know, when I look back at them, you know, I've got photographs of them and people have published, you know, things of my aunts. 
I think there's a little book on, on the table which I'll show you where the Scottish Parliament asked me to write uh, a, a thing because it was the 500th anniversary mm. of their um, uh, of their magazine. And I wrote an article and there's a copy of their magazine on there. And I gave them a picture of two of my aunts and my uncle and my grand-aunt. And they are part of the the auntie gang <laughs> that looked after me. And they made sure that I went to school. And as I said earlier, they made sure I went to church three times every Sunday. And I've got a little New Testament Bible somewhere over there, which I got in 19... Um, God, I can't remember the date. But I've got a little Bible on there, and I I got it for regular attendance <laughs> at Sunday school. That was my first award. <laughs> my first thing, you know, my first qualification award is for attending Sunday school. <laughs> attending Sunday school, I because I never missed one. Mm. The only way I could, could miss a Sunday school or a church on a Sunday, I had to be sick. And that meant taking castor oil. Oh, because okay. their, their attitude was, if you were sick, you had to take castor oil. <laughs> so I would rather go to church than take castor oil. <laughs> and believe it or not, that is the the influence mm. which has fashioned my attitude. The fact is, if I've got to do something, I've got to be extremely ill not to do it. Wow. Um, and I don't make excuses if I... If I can do it, I will, because my aunts gave me that discipline that once you're committed and something has to be done, it has to be done. And if you don't do it, and I tell that with the history, I, 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 I tell today that our history is not about the past, because you can't change the past. You can't change what has happened. Not one inch of it you can. But the past has consequences. And that's what I was taught. When you did anything, it has a consequence. Hmm. And therefore, either you've got to deal with it or somebody else has to deal with it. And when the consequences of our past is racism, it's the way women are treated. It's the way we treat animals. Mm. It's the way we treat the old. All those are of past misjudgment, past prejudices, past wrongs. And we now, I think, should deal with that. And my aunts, they've instilled that into me, mm. that when you do something, think of the consequences. And when I say that today, you get... High, Fulton, you know, high-level academics have never thought of consequences. Mm. They, they, because they're thinking, oh, you can go back to the past and you can explain it. You know, slavery was because we needed the money economically, and black people were inferior to white people, so we could enslave them. And I said, well, where's the evidence for the inferiority? Mm. Nobody can tell me. And when you see people say you're different races, 
and I say to audiences, I said, I want the, this audience, high, low academics, they call, what they call themselves. I say, I want you to define race. You've got five minutes. I'm going to stop lecturing. You tell me what race is. Nobody's done it yet. And therefore, those women mm. with no education themselves, because they left school at 11, like my mum, 11 years of age. They understood that, that what you did in life has consequences. And therefore, to me, they have instilled in me that sort of principle of life, which mm. I apply. And um, I didn't get it from academia. Mm. <laughs> and therefore, to me, they are one of the greatest um, people with any sort of influence. Other people with influence, um, nothing as important as that. Absolutely. Um, the other people are maybe scientists who worked in my field and, you know, who did things. But in terms of the impact on the way I live, I would say that my aunts... They cover just about every aspect. Wow. That's an amazing story. <laughs> and it's it's um, interesting, in my opinion, very inspiring to note the influences or the um, incredible power our guardians or parents or aunts um, have on us. To think at that young age, you were shaped with these values that have become a consistent steady force through your life yeah let's let's talk a bit about activism and mm -hmm. in racial okay. inequality mm -hmm. um just before we started this podcast we we're talking about you know henry dundas and some, some of mm. the work done there what inspired you to get more involved in the conversation around racial inequalities standing up for you know the people who are not represented enough in, the, in society okay well, what um, did that for me is when I arrived in, you know, um, at Liverpool, mm. that's where my boat arrived. In fact, my trip, um, again, this is part of it because when my mum sent for me, this is a term we use, <laughs> um, you're sent for. <laughs> and I woke up one morning and my aunts just said to me, your mother has sent for you. <laughs> That's 1955. I don't know whether they said it with relief, <laughs> but um, they got the fares and they got the tickets and they got everything. And, um, uh, and what was interesting, which I never thought of, and as I say, I'll let you see the copy of my grand-aunt, mm. because she was a very tall woman and she was my aunt's aunt. And it was her house in Kingston we lived in. Wow. So all of us, my aunts, myself, my mom then when my father left, and my brother, we all lived in that one house in Kingston. And it's only dawned on me, it's sort of recently thinking about all that. My grand-aunt, she was a very tall, elegant lady, wear long dresses and boots with... <laughs> the zip up the side, <laughs> you know, 
which is now fashionable. Yep. <laughs> but she wore that. And she always had a hat on and a Bible under her arm. And it was her house. And I thought, no, who the devil was she? But she was fairer in complexion than we were. So I have no idea where she originated from. But she was my mother's aunt. Now, when I arrived in Britain, you know, there was colorism in Jamaica because a lot of Jamaicans are light in complexion. And because of slave owners had slaves with their children, with their slaves, you know, slave owners had children with their slaves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the slave owners having children with their slaves, we have a lot of mixed race, as you may call it, people. And they were called mulatto at the time. And um, the, the whole idea then of when I came to Britain and saw just white people, the only white person I know in Jamaica was the minister of my church. Mm. Uh, you know, the ministers up on, on that time was all white. They were sent from Britain to run the church. I was in a congregational church. The point is about that, is that when I arrived in London, seeing lots of white people, seeing some black people, and then, you know, when I was rejected as being educationally subnormal, and then my mom and I, we went to church, and the, the local church, everybody there was white, and the minister told us not to come back. So this is one of the things I've not said before. Wow. But this happened. The minister actually told us not to come back because we were affecting his congregation, meaning that people would stop coming to church. And that led to a lot of black churches being set up because they felt that, you know, they had to have their own church. But that did happen. And so all these things were happening, you know, you walk past a shop and you see there were posters. People now refer to it, sort of, I noticed black historians are talking about um, the posters which used to be in the windows. No, no, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Wow. <laughs> in terms of accommodation, that was in the shop window. So I walked past that. That's not a, a historical document to me. I saw it in the shop window. That was quite normal. Um, and, you know, you would go to a, again, this is something I've not said before, but you're walking past a shop or you go into a pub and the next thing you know, somebody's throwing bottles of stuff at you and you have to run. So, you know, all these things were happening, but again... I didn't put them down to race. I didn't put them down to any difference. To me, it's just uh, having a difficult time, you know, and you knew what to avoid. Um, and uh, the there were notices on the side of the road. You you know, where my mom lived, in, and we lived near Pentonville Prison. And Pentonville Prison was a prison where they hanged people. It was the hanging prison, and if I looked out my window and looked up the road, I could see the, the walls of Pentonville. 
So that's where we lived, you know, in terms of accommodation. We couldn't live anywhere else because the rent was half my mother's salary. And she was on about, at one time, I think it was five pounds and she was paying two pounds fifty, half her salary for rent. So we were living on two pounds fifty um, when I was at school. I did paper rounds in the mornings to help, you know, um, uh, 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 her to pay the bills and stuff. So all that was going on, and you didn't, I didn't put it down to whether it was race or to history or anything, because I wasn't familiar with that. Mm. Um, and on the wall, when you got out the door there, and there was a big writing on the wall, KBW, Keep Britain White. Wow. That was written on the wall in white paint. Um, and um, that was something that, again, you saw, but mm. it was no big deal because you weren't aware of the consequences. Right. Uh, you see what I mean? Yeah. These were things were happening. Yeah. And a lot of people who talk about this history don't understand that. Mm. You see, a lot of historians, they heard it, they've not spoken to somebody who's been through it. Yeah. Like I have. So to me, this was just nothing really. It was just these guys were doing that. As long as nobody was harming me physically, it didn't bother me. Mm. And um, so eventually when I got myself, you know, educated in a way, then left London, and then went to, to Leicester. Mm -hmm. Then we had certain meetings at Leicester. You know, there were political discussions about um, um, class. It wasn't about race. We had mm -hmm. no discussion in the 60s at Leicester about race. And so, therefore, I went through Leicester without really discussing race as such. Wow. We had an international society and we had meetings and parties, but we weren't discussing race. When you consider, in the 60s, I also went through Enoch Powell, you know, who was the politician who was right. saying, rivers of blood, if they don't leave, um, people like Nabarro and Griffiths, these guys were politicians who were wanting black people to leave. Didn't bother me. You know, I didn't see it as anything threatening. Hmm. Again, because I had this sort of resilience that, you know, from my aunts and going to church and stuff, the only people I was frightened of are people in the Bible. <laughs> I wasn't frightened of anybody outside it. Hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. It, it was that kind of resilience I had. But when I um, came to Edinburgh in 64, after I had that interview, and then when I came, uh, people were interesting because they weren't used to black people. Hmm. Uh, they were used to students, I noticed when I came. So the black students were from Africa or from the Caribbean, but they were, to me, elite. <laughs> you see? So they wouldn't realise that. I came from London. They came from Nigeria or Ghana or uh, Jamaica or Trinidad. 
they were here on scholarships. They knew each other. This is something which I'm giving you, which I've not discussed. Wow. What fascinated me about them, even though when I came, you know, I'm seeing these people who are supposed to be my people, and I'm sitting with them in a, in a restaurant in Edinburgh, the barbecue, or whatever, or they come over from Glasgow, and we're all in Edinburgh, and they didn't know much about me. Hmm. Because I was an immigrant. I came on a banana boat. They flew over on planes. They were from Nigeria North or Nigeria South. And I found it fascinating because I live in Jamaica and I didn't know somebody five miles away. Mm. They came from Nigeria, from different cities, different places, and they knew of each other. Because they knew each other's families, because their families were so important politically or socially. So they would say, are you from X? And somebody would say, oh, yes, you know, my dad knew your dad because they were both at university together. Whereas that's something I didn't know. And I found that fascinating. So I begin to look at the social differences amongst ourselves as migrants. And then when I went out on the street, <clears throat> because I was looking for accommodation, mm. I would apply for somewhere to get a room. And when I arrived at the place, they told me the room was taken. So when I phoned, the room was available. But when I arrived, it was not available. And therefore I realized there was now a, a rejection, uh, which you didn't have in London because we were living at black people's houses. Mm. So they, you know, was living with in a, a house owned by a Caribbean person. So it wasn't a big problem. But when I came here having to live with a white landlady or a landlord, then it presented this. I could see there was a, a, a difference that as an issue, a difference of superiority and inferiority, I begin to detect that. And um, that then we had debates and discussions and we started at the university in Edinburgh. We, you know, I was at the Harriet Watt, but I knew all the other students were Edinburgh. And we were discussing this history of the past and so slavery came up and I had to start reading about it because I knew nothing about it. Mm. Um, and there were some of the Jamaicans who were fair-skinned enough to have Scottish relatives. So, you know, some of them knew their Scottish relatives from a 200 years ago. Wow. <laughs> that they knew they had, you know, there was somebody called MacFarlane and she was aware of her Scottish relatives who were in Jamaica 200 years ago, they were still here. So again, I began to deal with this history in that way. It was almost a personal development. Mm. And then I started to read, you can see the books around the house, uh, from 19, the 1960s. And when I left Scotland in 68, I then went and worked at a research institute in Surrey, in England, 
And then, you know, I realised then there was this race thing hmm. and there was this view that black people were not as smart as white people. And you could, you, I began to pick it up in terms of the institute I worked on, I worked in at Reading. It was Red Hill, just outside Reading, a place called Nutfield. And it was owned by the Brewers. And my job was to do research on, on barley um, uh, because I did my PhD up here. So when I was in Scotland, I did a PhD. And the PhD officially is an Edinburgh University PhD, mm. although I did the research at the area Watt. So my time in Scotland, 64 to 68, I picked up the hints about slavery, but I also picked up the difference between my background as a black person from Jamaica mm. and a black person from Africa or a black person from the Caribbean, um, that there was a difference between me and them because they were, they had a certain elitism about them, which of course came from private schools and from families who were fairly well-placed. Whereas I came from a family who was not well-placed mm. and that we had to work our way through London, through um, prejudices, which we didn't even understand. I mean, there were fascists in London too, such as Mosley, Oswald Mosley, mm. who was anti-Jewish but he also was anti-black. But all that didn't bother me. When I came to Scotland, I began to pick up this difference between myself and black people and myself and white people. This is the irony of it. So when I went to the Research Institute in 68 with a PhD, I was given the job to do research on barley. And um, I started that research. And one thing I learned because people have asked me about this. How did you manage yourself, you know? And Because I'm on my own. Mm. Um, and uh, I realized that if I did something important scientifically, then they can't touch me. <laughs> and I, it's, it's something I, it's what I call, it's off the street. Mm. <laughs> it's the sort of thing my aunt would have taught me. Do something important, boy because they can't touch you if you do wow. that. So with my research, and there's something I've not said before, I developed a strategy of I've got to do, the work I do has got to be at a significant level. And this is going to be part of my protection. Wow. Thank you, everyone. You have now reached the end of part one of Sajjeev Palmer's story. We've got two more parts for you, so please um, go on to the next part to listen in. If you like this episode, please do subscribe, like, and give us a review. We would really appreciate that. Thank you, and have a great day. <laughs>